0: Hi everyone. So this episode is a little different because it's a collaboration with Inquiring Minds, a science and politics podcast produced by Climate Desk, which is a journalistic collaboration between The Atlantic, The Guardian, and other major publications. Now if you are intrigued by the idea of Reckonings collaborating with other podcasts, like for instance, Strangers, which features beautifully produced, deeply personal stories, or Death, Sex, and Money, which takes on the juicy questions that are left out of polite conversation, or Ted's Sincerely X, featuring anonymous ideas worth spreading, then let me know. Or better yet, let them know, because I am the smaller fish here. And to check out Reckoning's previous collaborations, With Inquiring Minds and with Love & Radio, go to reckonings.show slash episodes, and on the right, click on co-production. With that, here we go.
1: I certainly don't argue that climate change isn't real. It is real. We know that the planet is warming. You know industrial emissions have a lot to do with it. But there's a lot of uncertainties here. According to the IPCC, warming can be anywhere between 1.5 degrees Celsius to 4.5 degrees Celsius if we double pre-industrial levels of greenhouse gas emissions. And it turns out while the models are showing that the warming will be in the median to high side of that spread, the data that we've seen suggests it'll be on the low side. So I'm not arguing that the, you know, the scientific consensus is necessarily wrong. What I am saying is that there's a lot of good reasons to think that warming will be on the very low side of the most likely outcomes projected by the IPCC. And if that's the case, then it's probably going to be a relative non-event. So that was the old elevator pitch.
2: I'm Andrea Viscontas, the host of Inquiring Minds, a podcast where we investigate how science, society, and
0: policy collide. I'm Stevie Lepp from Reckonings, which explores how people change their hearts and minds. And today we are diving into the odyssey of Jerry Taylor, whose voice you just heard giving his elevator pitch from his days at the Cato Institute, a libertarian think tank where Jerry was based for over 20 years. He was the head of Cato's energy and environmental policy operation and a prominent spokesperson for climate skepticism. And as you might have noticed in that clip, and you will hear in the rest of this piece, Jerry Taylor is very good at selling ideas. While at Cato, he made regular appearances on the likes of CNN and NBC and Fox News, uh, waging TV battles against proponents of climate action. He always won his TV battles. And it is heading into one of those battles that this story begins.
1: I'm not entirely sure what show it was, or I'm not even positive it was the, If I remember the network, it might have been CNN, it might have been CNBC, MSNBC, I don't recall. But anyway, I was in a debate with Joe Rahm. He's a scientist. And we had a debate uh, about climate change, and I argued on screen That, uh, well, James Hansen testified in front of the United States Senate in the late 80s about climate change. It set off the entire political explosions that then followed. And uh, what uh, Dr. Hansen argued is that if we continued along business as usual and we didn't do anything to address emissions, then we would see a tremendous amount of warming in the future. And he actually offered temperature projections to back that up. Well, it's been more than a decade since uh, uh, Dr. Hansen testified in front of the Senate. We can go back now and see how well those predictions have held up. And what do you know? We've seen far less warming than uh, James Hansen pre- uh, argued that we should have seen by now. In fact, we've only seen about a quarter of it. And that suggested to me that the climate is simply not as sensitive to greenhouse gas emissions from industrial sources as we thought. That doesn't mean that climate change is happening necessarily, but it does mean that the models are running really hot. and And there's a lot of... Uh, uh, that a lot of this debate in climate science is between what theory tells us should be happening based on rather dodgy climate models versus what we're actually seeing on the ground. We're just not seeing the kind of warming we should have been seeing by now. We go back to the green room, and Joe said, uh, let me ask you a question. Did you actually read James Hansen's testimony he just got done talking about? And I said, well, I mean, some time ago. It's been more than a decade since he gave it, but uh, I didn't read right before it came on the air. Uh, And he says, so what was all this based on? And I said, what was based on some uh, uh, writings from climate skeptics that I've been working with? Uh, And he says, all right, do me a favor. He says, I'm not sure. I'm sure you won't do it. He said, because I imagine you're the total hack that I think you are. But if you're not, he said, go back to your office and read that testimony again. Uh, and if you bother to do this jerry here 's what you 're going to find you 're going to find that he didn't just give he didn 't just give one temperature projection he gave three temperature projections based on different emissions profiles. Yes, he did offer a scenario a which he called business as usual, which strictly speaking uh, you reflected reasonably accurately, but he also gave B and C scenarios which reflected different emissions, assuming you know different kinds of uh, uh, whether we have public policy action or not. One of them had an emissions profile which is virtually, you know, which is pretty close to what we've actually seen from that point uh, in time when he gave that testimony to the present. And if you look at the temperature projection he gave for that scenario, it's pretty much spot on. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty accurate. That's pretty much what we've seen. He says, "So the bottom line is, you're arguing that the models run hot, and that the amount of warming we've seen proves it. And the reality is, that's not at all what that underlying testimony suggests." He said. Or don't bother to look at it. Just be a, you know, be a hack. By God, I was going to go and reread Jansen's testimony and prove him wrong, right? And so I went back to my office and took Joe up on the challenge and didn't take long to dig up the testimony and look it over again. And Mirable Dick, too, he was right. I figured I must have been missing something because, uh, after all, I work with scientists who have very strong opinions to the contrary. So I went and talked to a climate skeptic, uh, a scientist, credentialed scientist, who publishes in the peer-reviewed literature upon occasion, who had uh, offered this narrative on multiple occasions in the past. And I, I told him what happened, and I said, well, look, I just finished reading uh, Hansen's testimony, and uh, it seems to me like uh, Joe's right. So what am I missing here? You know, what am i overlooking uh, in this in this debate and it turns out i wasn't overlooking anything uh, for 20 minutes the scientist in question kind of hemmed and hawed and spun and was kind of dodging all of this and finally said look i don't represent james hansen let him get an attorney and explain or let him go on tv and explain it my job is to you know is to put a highlight uh, is to put a bright spotlight on the fact that he's predicted a lot more warming than we've seen that's what i've done and that's what's happened and i'm not sure why we're having this conversation So that put me back on my heels. I mean, my gosh, I'm now dealing with somebody who I had been trusting uh, for some time now, who was uh, purposefully uh, and consciously misrepresenting the debate. And it shook me a lot. I I told him, it seems to me he was dodging and misrepresenting the debate for uh, rhetorical, uh, uh, for short-term rhetorical gain. And I didn't like being put in the spot of going out on national television and making an argument that he knows darn well that he fed me, which was dodgy and misleading. So, from that point forward, I began to do the due diligence with the narratives from the scientific community I was relying on before I would carry them forward into debate. And I found that far more often than not the same story would play itself out over and over and over again. Either the studies were misrepresentative or they were cherry picking data. Or they alleged positions or arguments held by climate scientists that they were arguing against that really weren't held by those climate scientists. Um, or they were just not very good. They weren't in peer reviewed journals. They were, uh, to the extent to which they got any attention from cl- uh, climate mainstreamers, the studies would be shot to pieces. I was certainly aware that I was becoming less and less comfortable with my position, but I thought that while the climate skeptics may be overstating their case, misrepresenting a lot of the argument, still by and large they have a viable, they have a plausible narrative. But I was on, since I didn't trust any of that conversation anymore, and I certainly didn't want to be a party to, uh, uh, well, if, if you can't trust your source, you shouldn't be using your sources. So I was much more comfortable with the economics conversation.
0: The economics conversation revolves around the argument that addressing climate change is simply too costly for our economy to bear. And Jerry was more comfortable with that argument until he came across an article by economist Jonathan Adler.
1: He argued that even if the climate skeptics are right, even if everything they say is correct, even if everything that the A-list climate scientists who testify uh, for Republicans in front of the Congress about why we shouldn't act to do anything about climate, he said, even if they're all right, they're still, that's not a good argument against climate action. He said, look, libertarians generally believe that government is here to protect private property from being damaged by people who might trespass against it. And if party A, you know, the people who make greenhouse gas emissions, are destroying the property or the persons of party B, you know, victims, then just because A gains more than B loses doesn't mean it's A-OK in the libertarian playbook. Libertarians are not utilitarians. They believe the government's job is to protect property rights with no proviso that says, unless you make a whole lot of money by screwing with them. And I had never thought of it that way.
0: Okay. So let's say you own a small vineyard on a rolling hilltop. Now, because of climate change, your growing season is getting shorter and hotter. This year, your grapes just dried out on the vines, and you can't sell wine from dry grapes. The point Jonathan Adler is making is that just because fossil fuel companies are making more money emitting greenhouse gases than you're losing because of how those emissions are damaging your vineyard doesn't make it okay that those emissions are damaging your vineyard. In other words, your property rights are being violated. And property rights are really important to libertarians like Jerry. So is addressing climate change too costly for our economy to bear? Well, some people, like you in this case, are already paying for it in the form of violated property rights. And libertarians believe that government should protect property rights, which means government should take climate action
1: I got to the point where I could not find a credentialed economist in academia who published in the peer-reviewed literature who would argue against climate action not as not a single one I was there to uh, oversee Cato's uh, climate and uh, energy and environmental policy operations and one of the biggest issues in my bailiwick is climate policy and I felt uncomfortable talking about it because I could not confidently make the case against climate action, uh, but I didn't think there was any space for any other position at Cato, so I just found other things to spend my time on.
0: How how long was that period of time? Oh, that
1: probably lasted, uh, I don't know, for exactly maybe three or four or five years, something like that.
0: Three, four or five years? Yeah. That's a long period of time to be running Cato's energy and climate policy operation without feeling comfortable talking about energy and climate policy don't you think
1: well i felt comfortable about talking about other matters back then so uh so i found ways to keep myself busy was introduced to me via email by Cliff Asness, who is a hedge fund manager in New York. Uh, Cliff is a friend of mine and a uh, donor to the Cato Institute. And um, Cliff uh, shot me an email and said, hey, look, uh, my former boss at Goldman, Bob Litterman, uh, asked if uh, I might be able to provide an introduction. Bob's still a good friend. He says, you know, uh, Bob's kind of a soft libertarian who I agree on most things, but uh, uh, he is a climate activist. He says, you know, I'm kind of with you. I'm not. Uh, but still, uh, he asked if uh, I might introduce him to somebody at the Cato Institute so he might have a conversation. I encourage you to get together, he's a great guy and uh, even if, you know, you disagree with Bob, he's somebody who's very smart and uh, interesting to talk to. So I said fine, happy to uh, happy to meet him. So Bob comes in to see me and uh, in the room with me was Peter Van Dorn, who's the editor of Regulation Magazine and a friend of mine. Uh, and Peter had shared my discomfort with, uh, with our climate position. And uh, so Bob came in, and uh, he sa- he introduced himself and explained his background. And it turns out uh, that Bob Litterman uh, was a partner at Goldman Sachs. Uh, but most notably, he was one of the first, in fact, I think he was the first director of a quant operation on Wall Street. And within the academic community, he's known as one of the top risk Uh, uh, risk management uh, intellectuals in the world. And uh, so he said, look, Jerry, um, I deal with risks at Goldman that are much like climate change every single day. We have a wide distribution of possible outcomes given various investment scenarios. And I can't tell you exactly what the chances are for each of those little scenarios to come to pass. But I do know that there is a distribution of risk. And when we have a distribution of various outcomes, many of them quite costly and, and, and dangerous for our clients, we don't just ignore them. We don't. We have to price those risks. And after we price those risks, maybe we'll hedge, maybe we won't. He said, but we can't ignore them. And he says, where I think a lot of this conversation in climate is going wrong is that you, the Cato Institute and you know, mainstream climate activists are in a hot war about the most likely outcome from climate change. And your folks say it'll be on the lower end of the possible distribution of outcomes, and they argue it'll likely be the median or high end. And he says, you know, and I don't know, and maybe you're right. Uh, What's the, you know, what will come to pass? I don't know. He said, but if you price the risks associated with various outcomes, the arguments against climate action just fall apart. They just fall apart. And that's particularly true when you when you recognize the fact that climate change is a non-diversifiable risk. In other words, there's nothing I can invest in that will pay off if climate change happens. And he says, now, Jerry, in markets, when people are investing their own money and they confront non-diversifiable risks in the marketplace, how much do they pay to avoid those risks? He says the, the, the reality is they pay a ton to avoid risks like that. The case for action is is Absolutely undeniable. So, uh, after about uh, uh, an hour and a half or two hours of talking this through with Bob, he walked out of my office and I looked to Peter and I said, it just seems to me that our position got shredded to pieces here. actually it's kind of invigorating. I'm the kind of person who, when he runs into an interesting or clever or intriguing or uh, counterintuitive idea, wants to talk about it. Even climate skeptics will go back and say, look, there's a lot we don't know about climate science. You know, it could be a little, it could be a lot. I mean, if you listen to Scott Pruitt at the EPA, he does that, right? This is, this. so uncertainty is an argument used by skeptics. But the reality is, is that if you're in the risk management business, like Bob was at Goldman, like we are as a society with climate change, uncertainty is the reason that you hedge against risk. Uncertainty is why. You want to manage risk. The very fact of uncertainty is what demands the policy response. And so that's how I responded to the conversation with Bob. I was pretty excited. Imagine yourself if you're at a uh, holiday party with uh, the Mother Jones staff and you say, you know, I think gun control is kind of silly. I think the NRA's got a point when they argue that we need to be looser with gun regulation. I think that's the best way to do public safety. Could you imagine what that would do at your holiday party? Uh, Well, when you're amongst conservatives or libertarians and you say, you know, I think that, you know, Al Gore was more right than wrong and climate change is a real thing and it's not a conspiracy cooked up by uh, leftists who want to destroy capitalism. And I honestly think that you know, we need to act. And if that means using regulations or taxes or, you know, some other uh, uh, means to get fossil fuels out of this economy on a pretty short order, we got to do it. Well, you know, that's a, a pretty strong cup of tea for a lot of my old friends to drink. The fact is, is that uh, I became increasingly uncomfortable with uh, my position at the Cato Institute. And so by the spring of 2014, I decided that it was time to liberate myself from the constraints of uh, institutional orthodoxy and, uh, and to re-engage with uh, libertarian-friendly rhetoric, not just on climate, but on a whole host of issues.
0: Jerry Taylor is the only paid climate skeptic who has ever flipped. So why did he knowingly challenge his views on climate change? Why was he receptive to what Jim Hansen and Jonathan Adler and Bob Litterman had to say?
1: Most people who do what I do for a living, whether on the left or the right, are not in the business of wrestling with the strongest arguments and strongest advocates for the other side. They're in the business of being the best spokesman for their cause within their choir. And I wanted to do something beyond that. And so because I had greater aspirations for myself, it required me to wrestle with the best arguments for the other side. Most skeptics don't know what the best arguments from the other side are. They don't know what the strongest literature is. They don't know what the strongest data and evidence is because it's irrelevant to them. If all you're doing is talking to uh, people who watch Fox News or read the Wall Street Journal editorial page or look at National Review, it's pretty certain that your crowd is not up on this stuff as long as you're telling conservatives and Republicans what they want to hear, and you say it with brio and with a spear decor, uh, and with a, a healthy dose of snarling about, you know, Susie cream cheese and tree huggers. You're probably just fine. You'll be on Tucker Carlson's show. You'll you'll do. You'll get your job done. But I didn't want to embarrass myself, and I did not want to uh, be uh, diced and sliced uh, uh, on TV. Now, there are a lot of people. Uh, They don't mind being humiliated on public television by speaking absolute gibberish. They don't care because they are playing their role in the script they're given on that show to be the spokesman for the right-wing cause. Well, they don't care if, you know, they don't sound all that smart to smart people because they don't care about that audience. They only care about the, the choir audience. I also was very very aware of the fact that there were conservatives uh, who trusted me to give them solid information. So if I got a phone call from John Stossel at Fox or if I got a ring from George Will when he was writing for The Washington Post and they wanted to talk about a policy issue in my area, I had a responsibility to give them as bulletproof uh, an argument and as solid a uh, set of data as I possibly could because they're tr- relying on me. And if I don't do that, and then they go on the air, or they go in print, and they offer garbage, uh, and they get shredded, then they'll look at that and say, well, how the hell did that happen? Why was I running? How did this garbage get into my column? Oh, it's that guy that I listened to.
0: Which is exactly what happened to Jerry that sparked his transformation in the first place. He'd parroted a bunk scientific narrative on national television and then felt betrayed by the scientist who had fed it to him. So, in a way, it was Jerry's commitment to being a successful climate skeptic that made him open to change. It was precisely because he wanted to persuade people beyond his choir and be a reliable source for conservative pundits that he reread James Hansen's testimony and confronted that climate scientist when it looked right. And was a, shall we say, inquiring mind, doing the due diligence that led him to convincing counterarguments. And what made him reckon not just with his views on climate change, but with his relationship with his views more broadly.
1: Most people aren't in the business of looking skeptically at things that they already agree with or want to agree with as they are if they're looking at things they don't agree with or they don't want to agree with. That's just motivated cognition. My engines of motivated cognition were on full tilt when I was at the Cato Institute. It turns out if you're really smart, you got a high IQ, you're really well read, you can talk yourself into believing a whole lot of crazy. But if you're not so motivated, uh, to, you know, hold a tribal line, then with, the, with those engines cut off a little bit, things can become very different. I was having uh, uh... Lunch with a friend of mine, uh, a, a, a major climate activist, uh, John Pascotondo, he used to be the president of Greenpeace. And I got to know John when I was on the other side of this debate because I debated him on TV a lot, too. But uh, turns out John's a really nice guy. He didn't live too far from me. He liked to bass fish on the Potomac, so we kind of became friends. And uh, I was chatting with him about the Niskanen Center. I told him I was going to leave the Cato Institute. I was going to start the Niskanen Center. Uh, And I told him what issues we'd deal with, but climate wasn't one of them. And he said, Jerry, you really should deal with climate. I mean, you've got a whole lot of bad karma and not a whole lot of time to do something about it. And he said, man, life's short. You know, life's short. Look, you're the best opponent I ever had in this conversation, which means that you have a lot of uh, making up to do. He said, look, do what you want to do, but I think you'd be a happier person. Uh, if you could uh, engage on the issue that you probably are better equipped to engage on than any of the other issues uh, that you want to uh, uh, invest in at the Niskanen Center. The reality is, is that I was in a position that few people were in that I understood exactly why people gravitate towards climate skepticism on the right. I know climate skeptics really well. I know libertarians pretty well. I know conservative Republicans very well. I have a good relationship with a lot of them. And I can sit there with credibility and say, look, I used to believe exactly what you believe. Hell, I wrote your talking points. I know where this comes from. And for 20-odd years, I was there. So I understand exactly. But let me tell you why I'm not there. I have a unique opportunity to talk to conservatives and right-of-center uh, uh, political audiences in a way that most people don't. There are plenty of climate skeptics out there. I was, uh, because of my perch at the Cato Institute, I was one of the more influential of the bunch. Uh, I've been on TV and radio and op-ed pages and Fox News and the Wall Street Journal and Review more times than I can remember. I wish earlier in my career I had done the due diligence with the arguments that I was trafficking in uh, uh, far earlier than I began to undertake that mission. I do regret that. That's something that I feel I have a lot—I have a lot to make up for. So I walked out of that lunch thinking he's right.
0: The same day he left the Cato Institute, Jerry started the Niskanen Center, a libertarian think tank that promotes market-based solutions to climate change, primarily through a carbon tax. And in looking to persuade climate skeptics, the Niskanen Center uses what worked for Jerry.
1: Our aim is to talk to people who don't agree with us and to make the case for why they ought to entertain changing their minds and agreeing with us because I think people can be persuaded by good arguments. But you have to understand that you, you have to frame it in ways that they can appreciate. You have, to, you have to make the case with more moral and value arguments that speak to them. You will waste your time talking about equity issues to a libertarian who does not care, but they care about other things, so you make the case in a different fashion. And it turns out that uh, that is a, a more invigorating and intellectually challenging life than uh, simply one-offing an op-ed for uh, uh, National Review every couple of weeks or, you know, putting in your, you know, once or twice a week appearance at Fox News just to, you know, uh, to shout with the howler monkeys about how the communists are coming to take your children. It is tremendously liberating to be in a position to argue uh, uh, in the uh, what you want and to take positions that you're totally comfortable with without having to answer to uh, an administration or a management that uh, you don't agree with. One of the most useful witticisms that I've come across was from C.K. Chesterton who cautioned against uh, the person of the one book, the, the the person who might read Atlas Shrugged, or you know, name a book that is all of the political rage in certain communities, and then they become militant on this. And and so Chesterton argued against the person who reads the one book, uh, because they will invariably find themselves in a well-lit prison cell, uh, in a well-lit intellectual prison cell that they can't escape from. And when we find ourselves uh, using our engines of motivated cognition to stay within the tribe and to constantly police ourselves against the possibility of being tempted by heretical thoughts uh, and uh, uncomfortable observations about reality. What we're really doing is arming our inner policemen to keep watch on this penitentiary that we voluntarily locked ourselves in. And one of the reasons why it's been an incredibly... uh, Invigorating thing for me to be at the Niskanen Center and to have the people around me that I have around me is that it's an incredibly invigorating thing to not be in a penitentiary anymore, to not be in an ideological penitentiary or some sort of tribal penitentiary. And I fear that too many people, not just in climate skepticism, and not just on the right, but on the left as well, because they are they are captured. By these uh, dogmatic and ideological uh, loyalties, that they are, in a sense, locking themselves in a, in, in a rather exhausting jail cell. And they would be far better to let these things go and to think with open minds.
0: What is unique about Jerry's story to me is that Jerry Taylor really is this rare bird whose mind was changed by information. Uh, you know, because of motivated cognition, because people can find whatever information they want to support whatever it is that they believe. You know, it, it is rarely the case that people's minds are changed by information, and it is really a testament, I would say, to how ruthless of a critical thinker uh, or shall we say inquiring mind exactly uh, jerry taylor is Um, (laughs) and actually i just i just want to share a little you know when i asked him if the niskanen center calls itself a libertarian think tank or how they kind of accommodate the nuance that they bring to libertarianism he gave me this amazing spiel you know that s- some people there call themselves neo-libertarians and some people are liberal and some people are neoliberals and <laughs> ordo-liberals and clearly they are just a, a a refreshingly critically thinking bunch who are you know not like he says not people of one book but are really thinking through things on a case by case or policy by policy basis and uh Yeah, I I almost (laughs) called it, I I almost was going to title the piece, The Liberated Libertarian. But but yeah, he, I I, I mean, I, I talk to people who change all the time, and it really is this rare and unique and wonderful and, you know, fits with Inquiring Minds very well story that he was moved by by solid arguments, by, by, by solid evidence and information.
2: Yeah, I think for me, one of the most interesting parts of the interview is when he talks about the process of actually making this, coming to this realization, where, you know, he, he starts to see how other individuals who are climate skeptics are cherry-picking data, are quoting studies that are not really well done, or are reports. And, you know, that, I, I think it takes a, a real sort of shift in mind to recognize uh, those kinds of tricks and tools because for so many people that is just the way that they do research and they it's a hard it's hard for them to sort of recognize that they are cherry picking data. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. it's like they're so compelled by that one piece of evidence that they just keep coming back to it and saying, no, but look at this piece of evidence. Look at this Mm -hmm. data point. Um, And here he is saying, look, you know, a lot of the stuff that we've been quoting comes from shoddy research. And when you look at this consensus, uh, that you know, things sort of come out in the other way. And so I was really excited to have you bring his story to us so that we can get a little bit more insight into how an individual does successfully change his or her mind, uh, especially when they have a lot of motivation not to. An mm-hmm. individual who's getting paid to be a climate skeptic is certainly not particularly motivated mm-hmm. uh, to, you know, change his tune.
0: Mm-hmm. One um, one lingering question for me is, you know, I would love to know if there are people that Jerry kind of. Uh, brought along with him on his journey, you know, pe- people who he first convinced of climate skepticism, and then convinced of the case for climate action. Yeah, like
2: as he talked uh, about, you know, he's now he's the guy, he's the guy at the party that, you know, has like bad body odor, or you know, nobody wants to talk <laughs> to him because you know he's he's now, and so it would be really interesting to sort of get a survey of, uh, you know the the individuals who did follow him, who were influenced by him when he was expressing skepticism on climate change. And, uh, you know, what do they think now? And uh, do they yeah. disown him uh, as a sellout? <laughs> you know, or do they? Um,
0: well, actually on that. So there is there's so much more to his story, obviously, that that could not be fit into the piece. But one one kind of juicy nugget that didn't make it is. His brother, actually, he kind, of, he kind of parlayed his brother into a role at the Heartland Institute. And, and his brother has kind of taken the Heartland Institute. I think it is a leading think tank of climate skepticism. And he recommended his brother for the role that his brother is now in. And his brother is deep in that. And so Jerry and his, and his brother just can't actually talk about climate change. Wow. I mean, they have a relationship and they, you know, and they they see each other and they've just kind of agreed to not talk about it. But they are very much on, you know, very different sides in a very, very public way. Hmm. Well, maybe there's a new reckoning in your future. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, for me, the the broader implication of this story and and one Mm -hmm. that I think... You know, both the inquiring minds and the reckonings audiences can really appreciate is that, you know, along with tackling climate denial and 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 politically motivated skepticism at the level of, of the views in and of themselves, you know, at the level of whether it's a scientific scientific evidence or the economic arguments We really need to be tackling at the level of our relationship with our views, you know, and you you could say like inoculating ourselves with, you know, with genuine skepticism and with and with critical thinking, which is portable beyond the realm of climate change and increasingly essential in our uh, post truth moment.
2: Yeah, I mean, in some ways, Jerry was the perfect setup for having a kind of reckoning because he was in the business of critical thinking. You know, he was in the business of making an argument, in the business of debating uh, something that was out there. So part of his job was to continue to collect evidence and research. And and the fact that he started to see that the bulk of the evidence was not on his side anymore, um, you know, is a testament of his thoroughness. I think for most of us, we don't often have that many opportunities to continue to collect evidence once we've formed an opinion. Yeah. I mean, usually, you know, when we're not sure about something, we go and we research it. And then once we... Are satisfied with the research, and we come to an opinion we don 't revisit it very often. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you know that 's one of the, the the lessons maybe here is that uh, when there is a, when you do hold a strong opinion that does seem to continue to remain controversial, uh, maybe we do need to do periodic checks uh, to make mm-hmm. sure that our opinion still aligns with the available evidence. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds.
0: And Reckonings would love to thank Helena Degroot, Vika Aronson, Phil Groman, and Patricia Adler for their editorial guidance. Luisa Tavlas for coordinating our conversation with Jerry. And of course, Jerry Taylor himself for having the courage to release himself from his tribal penitentiary and put his values to work. Next up, we'll hear from someone who helped incite those howler monkeys to howl, a young man who was the protege of the late Fox News chairman Roger Ailes. We're your hosts for this week. I'm Andrevis Gondis. You can find me on Twitter at Indrevis. I'm Stevie Lepp. You can find me on Twitter at Steph Lepp. Thank you for tuning in to this joint episode of Reckonings and Inquiring Minds.
1: In the late 60s, uh, a lot of environmentalists argued that uh, cancer was largely a product of industrial carcinogens and emissions, and unless we you know, totally rethought the industrial process. We were going to die of cancer academics. Now, we know that did play out that way. Uh, In the 70s, there was a tremendous amount of concern about uh, how we were going to run out of oil, copper, uh, tin, gas. I mean, everything. We were going to have a, a, a dramatic resource extinction. And unless we planned the economy to account for that, we were heading to an economic disaster. That never played out. Prior to that, of course, we heard that if we didn't address the population explosion and do a lot of aggressive family planning, even entertain things like the China One Child policy, we would all kill ourselves in some sort of Malthusian starvation die-off. And that never happened. And so to the conservative mind, climate change is just the latest example of a long list of uh, wolf-crying exercises. And H.L. Mencken once said... That the whole aim of practical politics is to keep the populace alarmed and thus clamoring to be led to safety, by menacing them with an endless series of hobgoblins, all of which imaginary. So, when environmentalists uh, come to you and tell you that we have to act dramatically in a World War II-style uh, mass mobilization, as Bill McKibben would have us believe, to address climate change, most conservatives think. Yeah, well, how convenient for you to find yet reason number 342 why capitalism must die. <laughs> and, uh, and your track record isn't very good. And uh, I am going to require some real serious evidence before I uh, you know, go ahead and engage in this, uh, in this suicidal exercise. I can still bring it, can't I?